Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome our audience, both online and in the studio, to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Alana Elias Kornfeld, Editor-in-Chief of Huffington Post's Healthy Living site, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Our topic is Fighting the Clock, How America's Sleep Deficit is Damaging Long-Term Health. And I'm thrilled to be here with such pioneers in the sleep movement, both from a medical and policy side. As sleep has been a huge content focus for us at HuffPost for the last three years, and we now have a whole section devoted solely to the coverage of sleep. Public health experts often speak of the three pillars of health, nutrition, exercise, and the third pillar, sleep. But we don't normally hear as much about the third. Employers, educators, and our multitasking culture do not allow for proper sleep or recognize its role in improving our personal health and productivity. In addition to this week being National Sleep Awareness Month week, we'll, <laughs> we'll all feel the effects of too little sleep this coming weekend when daylight savings time moves the clock ahead an hour. It should be National Sleep Awareness Year. <laughs> Today, we will examine the damaging effects of chronic sleep deprivation on long-term health. Here to lead us in discussion, we have to my left Dr. Susan Redline, professor of sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School. She'll introduce us to the strong body of evidence for the effects of sleep deprivation on disease risk in both students and adults. And she'll give us an idea of the prevalence and magnitude of the problem. Next to her, Dr. Frank Hu is professor of nutrition and epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. He will address health effects for workers on rotating shifts and also explain the close link between sleep deprivation and high calorie eating habits. Dr. Charles Seisler is chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He will describe the dramatic historic changes in sleep patterns in the US, how schools and industries have responded or not, and the role of recreational electronic media in the sleep problem. Lastly, we have Dr. Lucian Leap, an adjunct professor at Harvard School of Public Health, a renowned health policy analyst and founder of the National Patient Safety Foundation. Dr. Leap will talk about institutional and cultural barriers to changing sleep patterns and of efforts to curtail the traditional 36-hour shifts of resident physicians and nurses. Each expert will introduce an aspect of the topic, and then we'll have a fun and engaging dialogue among the panelists, at which point, about halfway through, we'll open the discussion to questions from uh, audience, both in studio and our online viewers. So to start, Susan, could you please tell us how much sleep adults and children should be getting, and why? And what does scientific research show about the health impacts of too little sleep? Yes. Well, thank you very much, but why don't we begin by actually defining what sleep is and why we need sleep to begin with. And that's no easy question, actually, to answer, except it's important to note that sleep is a complex neurophysiologic process, and it's characterized by very characteristic cyclical changes in the brain's electrical activity. 
And we evolved as a species, as other members of the animal kingdom have, to require a certain amount of these characteristic changes in our brain every 24 hours. And when these uh, characteristic changes occur, they're associated with changes in the brain's release of hormones that then influences how the other organs in our body work, as well as the overall level of um, autonomic nervous system and nervous system activation, which influences our blood pressure, our pulse, and many of our other physiologic processes. So these cyclical changes in electrical activity actually tell us something about the brain cell's connectivity. And very acutely, on one hand, these changes may lead to enhancing learning and memory, and that's why often when we study and then sleep at night, we'll retain things the next morning. And if we don't, we pull on all nighter, we, we'll, we'll, we won't learn the, that material. And on the other hand, there's also the physiologic impact of um, sleep in positively influencing the energy balance of the brain. We, we think of sleep as a time when brain cells restore and rejuvenate. So I think we should just begin with that. And we know that, in fact, when you deprive a person of sleep, it's, it's actually used as torture. And in fact, many days without sleep leads to death. And although that's quite dramatic, even much milder chronic sleep deprivation really exerts its toll on the body as well as on the mind. And what we know is, in fact, if you reduce, um, for example, in adults, Adults in general need about seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Adults getting less than six hours, less than five hours, or even less than seven hours are about 30 to 80% more likely to develop diabetes, have heart disease, have premature death. Now, the amount of sleep a child needs is a lot more challenging because during development, sleep needs change. But in general, we, we believe that adolescents need a little bit more than nine hours of sleep a night, whereas as a, uh, a five-year-old may need 12 hours. And children who don't get that amount of sleep not only are at increased risk for academic problems, behavior problems, but also may develop prediabetes, high blood pressure, and other harbingers of chronic health problems. Um, how many of us don't get that amount of sleep? Um, if you use those very, very rough categories, at least minimally 30% of adults are not getting the recommended amount of sleep, and as many as 70% of adolescents are not. So a very widespread problem, and the problem is increasing. In fact, it's the, the, the rise in a lot of our chronic health problems, diabetes and, and obesity, really have happened in parallel with changes in um, the amount of sleep we as a society are getting. Um, and um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very common problem, but it's a problem we often don't recognize. I think some of my colleagues are going to talk about the immune function, the problems with immune functions, hormonal release, um, stress responses, a whole host mm -hmm. of biochemical um, and nervous system changes that happen even with mild degrees of sleep deprivation. Please, Frank, I know this is an area of your expertise, especially the conversation about mm -hmm. prediabetes and obesity and the, the f nutrition connection. Right. Um, thank you. Um, I must admit that I'm a little sleep deprived <laughs> because <laughs> of uh, an grant deadline yesterday. Um, <laughs> but I'm very glad to be here. Um, 
I want to make uh, two points uh, to extend what uh, Susan has just said. Uh, the first point is that uh, uh, there is a close relationship between our dietary habits and uh, sleep habits. Uh, my research area has been primarily focused on diet and exercise in the prevention of obesity and type 2 diabetes. But over the years, we have been weakening up to the fact that uh, uh, diet, exercise, and sleep, they're all uh, uh, closely related to each other. And a good night of sleep is as important as uh, eating a healthy diet and uh, regular exercise. Um, in the Nurses' Health Study, which is a very large cohort of uh, female nurses uh, uh, in the U.S., uh, we found that uh, uh, women who are sleep-deprived uh, tend to have a healthy diet. Uh, they eat more calories, eat more uh, junk food, eat more sweets, desserts, and high sugary uh, uh, foods, and also they, they drink more soda. So those dietary habits may contribute to the increased obesity, uh, diabetes risk associated with uh, sleep deprivation. And the question is why there is a such close uh, link between our eating habits and, uh, and the poor sleep. Um, it, it turns out that uh, when we are sleep deprived, our appetite hormone actually go up. And one of the hormones has been studied extensively uh, is ghrelin, which is produced by our stomach. And uh, um, it uh, signals to your brain that you're hungry and uh, you need to eat more, especially high calorie, uh, high sugary uh, foods. And uh, so that uh, uh, creates a strong link between um, uh, sleep deprivation and uh, your eating habits. Another hormone that um, is affected by sleep deprivation is leptin. Uh, leptin has opposite effects um, as uh, ghrelin. Um, it's actually reduce your appetite um, and um, uh, when you are sleep deprived, uh, leptin actually goes down. So that will make you hungry. And uh, the third hormone that um, uh, is affected by uh, sleep deprivation is uh, cortisol, which is uh, a stress hormone. Uh, and sleep deprivation increase uh, cortisol production, and that can increase your heart rate and your blood pressure. But uh, it has been shown that chronic elevation of cortisol actually increase your risk of weight gain and uh, obesity, especially abdominal obesity, which is extremely dangerous for type 2 diabetes and the cardiovascular disease. Um, the second point I want to make is uh, related to a recent paper we published on uh, rotating shift works and the risk of type 2 diabetes uh, in the nurses' health study. Uh, in this very large uh, cohort, uh, we followed more than uh, 180,000 female nurses in the U.S for almost 20 years, uh, we found a strong relationship between uh, rotating shift work and the increasing risk of type 2 diabetes. The longer the duration of the shift work, uh, the higher the risk of diabetes. As you can imagine that uh, shift work is very common uh, among female nurses, and more than 60% of the nurses reported uh, some sort of uh, rotating night shifts. And we found that uh, women who did shift work for 10 to 19 years had 40% uh, <coughs> increased risk of diabetes. Those who did shift work for 20 or more years had 60% increased risk of diabetes. So this is really substantial. Uh, the increased risk is highly significant from public health point of view because uh, shift work is very common in our society and the type 2 diabetes has become an epidemic, not only in this country, but also globally. So this study, I think, um, um, uh, it's really a, um, a wake-up call for 
not only the shift workers, but also their employees. And uh, so the question is how can we, uh, what can we do to reduce the risk of diabetes and other chronic diseases uh, in this high-risk population. So th I guess that's something we're going to discuss um, later on in this forum. Well, there are always skeptics who, are, who question whether or not these associations that have been described of increased risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes in people who sleep a short amount or who work rotating schedules, maybe that's because those pe that's what those people do and people who are going to have heart disease and diabetes tend to work night shift or tend to sleep shorter hours. So it's always hard to find the chicken from the egg. And so people say, well, why don't, why, why don't you do an experiment where you actually shorten the amount of sleep? Now, of course, to do that in millions of people is quite a difficult thing to arrange. But it turns out that every year in the spring, 1.5 billion people in the world lose an hour of sleep. And in the United States, we're going to do that this coming weekend when we spring our clocks ahead and shorten the amount of time we have available for sleep. And epidemiologists have looked at this carefully. And in, for example, on that Monday morning, next Monday, uh, there is a 6 to 17 percent increase in motor vehicle crashes on the nation's highways, uh, <coughs> including a 17 percent increase in fatal crashes, uh, alcohol-related fatalities, uh, as well as a, a studies in Sweden where they've gone through 20 years of myocardial infarction data have shown a 5% increase in the occurrence of heart attacks in the week following this one hour loss of sleep. So can you imagine? And, and in the fall, when we add an hour back to our sleep time, uh, the rate of uh, heart attacks drops by 5%. So if you, th you know, when you think of the, uh, the days that you've uh, cut an hour out of your sleep preparing a grant proposal or <laughs> cut a few hours or, or done whatever, uh, we don't think of that as increasing our risk of cardiovascular uh, accidents and, and, and uh, motor vehicle crashes uh, and potentially increasing the risk of metabolic uh, disorders that lead to diabetes. But that is, how, that is how sensitive the biology of our system is to this. And this is why I'm so concerned about kids. A hundred years ago, Lewis Terman, who for 20 years was uh, chairman, of chairman of the psychology department at Stanford, and uh, he developed IQ testing for children and so on, a leading uh, scholar in the area. He studied the sleep of grade school kids and high school kids uh, in, uh, in many of the western states. And, and compared at that time, the schools all started at 9 o'clock in the morning. And he compared the amount of sleep that the kids in the United States were getting with the amount of sleep that the kids in Germany and England were getting. And they were getting about one and a half hours less sleep per night uh, than they were in the US schools, which were starting at 9 o'clock in the morning. And given how he realized 100 years ago the importance of sleep, he said, we should never change to the system where we have our kids starting school at 7.30 in the morning like they do in Germany and England because it's going to degrade their ability to learn in school. Well, here we are 100 years later. <laughs> we have the kids starting at 7.30, 7 o'clock in some places in the morning. Uh, if they're being bused from afar, they, uh, they may be getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And our kids have lost on average, they're getting two hours less sleep per night on school nights two hours per night. We're not talking about once a year when we change the clocks. Every night they're getting two hours less sleep 
than they did when Professor Terman did those studies. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's a, a, these increased risk of uh, diabetes and obesity and so on, I think are directly linked to that loss of sleep in kids. And unfortunately, we don't, um, the medical profession doesn't set a very good example because we take uh, the, the young trainees who have just graduated from medical school, and we put them on schedules where they work 30-hour shifts twice a week. Not Many times when I talk about this, people think, well, 30 hours, that's a short work week. No, I'm talking about 30 consecutive hours. That's the length of one shift, and they do this twice a week with a few 12-hour shifts thrown in between. And we have shown that when they work these uh, marathon shifts, uh, that there's twice the risk of an attentional failure, the risk of their making a serious medical error, taking care of patients in the intensive care unit rises 36%, and the risk of their making a serious diagnostic mistake rises 460% compared to when they're working shifts of less than 16 hours. They have a 73% increased risk of stabbing themselves with a needle or scalpel and 168% greater risk of having a motor vehicle crash when they're driving home. And their professors, uh, the attending surgeons who are overseeing them, if they've had less than a six-hour opportunity to sleep the night before because they've been on call, then when the professors are operating on a patient the next day doing elective surgical procedure, there's a 170% increased risk that that patient will suffer serious complications like uh, organ damage or um, uncontrolled bleeding. But it's very difficult to get these policies to change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Institute, of, the Institute of Medicine, the Institute of Medicine uh, issued a report in uh, 2009 and said that working for more than 16 consecutive hours without sleep is hazardous for both the resident physician as well as for their patients. Uh, and then the accrediting body uh, responded by limiting for the first time this past July uh, the first-year residents uh, to working no more than 16 consecutive hours. But they said because our studies had been done only on first-year residents, there was no reason to change or limit the work hours <laughs> of those in their second year and beyond. And that's the kind of resistance to change that... Or the, or the attendings. Right, and yeah. they didn't do anything about the attendings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we started the patient safety movement, one of the driving concepts was to apply in healthcare the lessons learned in other industries. And one of the ones that I thought was a slam dunk was the uh, importance of limiting uh, sleep deprivation and restricting work hours. I couldn't have been more wrong. There was absolutely no interest in that whatsoever until Chuck and his group began to deliver evidence in the medical environment that showed, big surprise, that doctors like other people have uh, decrease in performance and at hazard not just to themselves, of course, but also to patients. So it's been very interesting now, given the facts, uh, what the response has been and has essentially been unchanged. Uh, there has been massive resistance uh, to restricting, limiting uh, hours of uh, residents and nurses as well. Uh, on the nursing side, it's a little simpler. Um, nurses um, work safely eight hours, no question about it. 12 hours, probably okay, except in intensive care units, emergency room, operating room, where, where 12 hours of intense work is, uh, is certainly too much. Although I don't know we have hard data on that, but you, all you have to do is interview a few people to understand that. 
but nurses like to work 12 hours because, of course, they have to work fewer days per week, and that fits better with a lot of other things they want to do with their life. What we have seen, however, is that most hospitals have restricted the double eight-hour shifts. Uh, they, they usually do not, they, do, they don't schedule eight, uh, 16 hours in a row. Uh, nurses will sometimes work a second shift in an emergency situation. So I think on the nursing side, we've, we've made some improvement. Um, from the physician standpoint, um, it's a good example of my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, the resistance has been massive to this. Um, it's been at all, at all levels, it's been in all specialties. Uh, and because of that, the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, which Chuck referred to, has really been unable to uh, tighten up the rules because of the resistance of its membership, which are the physicians. And you look at that resistance and the arguments that they present, um, they're, they're interesting. Uh, they all have an element of truth. They all are essentially bogus, and they all are self-serving. Uh, the first one is, um, I'm a good doctor, that's the way I train, you want to be a good doctor, you have to train the same way. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm a surgeon, every other night, every other weekend for six years. 30 hour days, not twice a week, three times a week. Um, and therefore, that's what you should do if you want to be as good as me. Uh, the second is that we really need the time, that if you restrict the hours, they won't have enough time to learn all the things they have to learn. However, no one has really examined the relationship of time and learning and how much time you need. And the obvious question is, does everyone need the same amount of time? Uh, I find it hard to believe that everyone who wants to be a surgeon needs precisely five years of training. It's conceivable to me, having known a few, that uh, you could learn it in three or four years, or maybe seven, or maybe never. But uh, it's, clearly not, it's clearly not linked uh, to time. The third argument they used a lot is uh, continuity. It's only by being there for the 30 hours that you learn continuity of care. This one's the most hypocritical of the bunch, because any of you who get your care at an academic medical institution, which is where we train the residents, know that getting your primary care doctor after 6 p.m. or on weekends is a very hard challenge. So it's something we talk a lot about, but in practice isn't there. So, uh, and, and then the final argument is that um, if we do this, uh, we won't have enough coverage, and so we'll have to have more residents, which means it'll take longer, or we'll have to hire other people uh, to cover them. And there's, and there's some truth in that, of course. If you don't have the bodies there, you have to fill in the bodies. Um, so all those arguments are put out, and uh, all are, uh, have been uh, exercised quite strenuously. And um, as, uh, as Chuck, I was really disappointed that the ACGME only sought to limit the hours for the first year. I think politically that's all they could do. I, I should also make the comment that from the very beginning of the resident hour debate, uh, there, there's been, a, a, I think, a fundamental error, and that is they've concentrated on number of hours worked per week, which is 80, which of course is twice the average in most industry. But that isn't what counts. It's how many are worked in 24, and from sleep deprivation standpoint, it should be no more than 12 in 24. If you did 12 in 24, for six days a week, that ends up being 76 hours, so it's not a whole lot different, but there's a lot of difference in terms of sleep deprivation. So uh, what, what we have then is a strong resistance to making any change, and, uh, and it's the interesting question is, how are we going to turn it around? Um, I think a, a couple facts are important to, to know. One is that the European Union has now for some time uh, had a requirement that no one 
residents or staff, as I understand it, uh, can work more than 48 hours a week. There is no evidence that I'm aware of that the European Union is turning out doctors who are significantly inferior to Americans. In fact, if you look at outcomes, the evidence is the other way around. On most health outcomes that have been studied, U.S. is somewhere between 19 and 30 on the list of the Western countries. So it's very hard to say that it's not possible to train good physicians when all of Europe is doing it on 48 hours. Uh, so that's interesting to look at. The second is, um, in a conference that, that Chuck and I helped organize uh, um, now almost two years ago to talk about responding to the Institute of Medicine's uh, recommendation, we had three uh, exemplars. We had uh, training programs in surgery, obstetrics, and medicine, I believe it was, who had done it, who had worked out uh, uh, the within the limits that were specified. And they, they said uh, several things that I think were important. One was that by all objective measures, their residents were learning more, not less, because uh, of course they had more, less sleep deprived time to, to learn, um, that they were happier, and that they were able to work out the uh, coverage and uh, arrangements and so forth. I present that only to say this is not just theory, this is, this is, this is possible to do. So the question that comes up is, um, uh, how's it going to happen? Uh, I, I would propose three things. First of all, that the response is totally irrational. Uh, that is, it's not related to the facts. The second is that it is emotionally very deep-seated because the physician resistance to shortening hours has to do very much with their definition of self-worth. The one thing that is a real no-no in medicine is to complain about hours. Because when you complain about how long you work, that suggests you're not really committed. So evidence from medical, medical students learn this in the third year of medicine, and it's certainly evident the one thing you never complain about is hours. The definition of a good doctor is somebody who's there at 8 o'clock at night making rounds. Now, this is not limited medicine. This is true in investment banking and a lot of other work. But, but, but it's very hard to get at something when it's part of your definition of your of yourself and of what a physician is. Exactly, and Ariana Huffington often speaks about this culture of um, sleep deprivation, one-upmanship, is how she says it, and the need to really turn that around. And so, as we move forward um, with Can our, I make one more point. Sure. <laughs> and that is, <laughs> it's not going to happen internally. That is, they're not going to change voluntarily. The, the res these re this resistance is too strong. So if we're going to see this change, which we believe we have to, it's going to require some external influences. And one of the questions is, what are they? One, of course, is pure success. As some hospitals show it to be done, residents will start to gravitate to those, and others will, will, will move. But that will take a long time. Uh, a second is regula regulation. I don't see that coming in the near future in this country. Um, the, the third is whether there can be, uh, a third possibility is public outrage. That doesn't work very well in this country because it's so evanescent, it doesn't last very long. And the fourth is whether there'll be pressure from patients. We are seeing the emergence of patient advocacy groups, uh, aggrieved patients who've lost a loved one or, or whatever. If these people take this on and go after the hospitals, I think it may be possible. They're going to have to make uh, long hours and these kind of schedules look inappropriate and maybe even ridiculous and begin to get people to think that way about it. That's the way the Chinese got rid of binding feet. 
is they made it ridiculous, and finally things changed after 800 years. But so um, we have to move forward. We have to move. We have to move forward. Um, <laughs> thank you all for your comments. Um, it's also interesting as I'm listening to you speak about it from a. a a health perspective that of course you know we in the room and online are all going to make sure that our surgeons in the future have slept the recommended amount before mm -hmm. they do any kind of procedure on us um, but also the policymakers are functioning with uh, not a full deck of cards if they haven't had the the proper amount of sleep so as we're here in um, the Harvard School of Public Health, let's think more about um, policy and who is responsible, first of all, and what do we need to do on a policy level to implement the change that's needed? Should we be looking at factories, companies, unions, individual behavior and culture? Um, I know at the Huffington Post we have napping rooms and that's really helpful for, for that four o'clock slump when you want to grab a sugary drink or food. Um, but, but really I want us to be able to come away from the conversation having some clear actionable moves to make in our own lives and also in our communities. And so I just throw that back over to you, Susan. Well, thank you. Well, let me bring it back to the children then. Um, and, Dr. and Dr. Seisler really brought up the, the, the observations of what's happened in the last 50 years to our school start time. And it's such an obvious example and potential point to, to really address. For children to be waking up five or six in the morning when many of them um, actually because of circadian rhythm shifts as they go into puberty and so forth, that it, um, they actually they may be optimally functioning much later in the morning. So not only is an early school start time shortening their sleep period and putting them at risk for sleep deprivation, but it's forcing them to shift the time when they're asleep versus wake compared to what their normal biological rhythms should have them do. So we have especially children going through puberty, adolescents who are forced to be in first period class at a time that they should be in REM sleep at home in their bed, <laughs> and they're not learning, and at, they're making themselves at risk for behavioral problems and mood disorders. Now, several areas around the country have begun to push for later school start times. There's an area in Michigan, in Rhode Island, and although that data collection is still fairly preliminary, there is evidence that school absenteeism goes down when you push the school start later. There's also evidence that mood problems in the children actually lessen. And there is some evidence that maybe academic performance also improves, although those data are still being collected. But again, we get to the pragmatic pushback. Why don't we do this? Mm -hmm. Well, the buses are scheduled to pick up mm -hmm. the children. There are split shifts in schools. Parents want to drop the kids off early to get to their own work. So there's these societal economic pressures that if you really thought about the health, the well-being of your child, you would think as a society we could push to a physiologic start time so our children get that opportunity to sleep at night. And they're also in class when their body is primed to be alert and ready to learn. Absolutely. And Frank, I know you have a personal story about that. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess I can tell you uh, a personal antidote. Um, my daughter, uh, she's a senior um, at uh, Sharon Public High School. 
uh, sharing, uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, is um, a suburban town uh, close to Boston. Uh, two years ago, um, Sharon uh, High School uh, decided to change uh, the uh, starting time from 7.20 uh, a.m. to 8.05 a.m. So uh, that change made a huge difference for my daughter and for, for us. And she doesn't need to get up at 6 a.m. anymore. Uh, she got uh, one extra hour of sleep. Uh, she's much happier in much better mood. Uh, this is very important for teenagers <laughs> at home. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess this is just a, a, a sample size of one uh, a personal antidote, uh, but as uh, Susan uh, just mentioned, uh, there is uh, growing evidence that uh, changing um, uh, school starting time um, uh, to a later uh, time can have uh, significant uh, benefits in, in many areas, uh, certainly. Um, it can improve uh, the mood uh, and the cognitive function of the, uh, the, the children and, uh, and can also uh, help them academically because they learn much better when they are more alert, they are more energetic. And uh, I know that uh, when uh, Sharon High School decided to change the time, there was quite a bit of a resistance uh, from the parents and from the teachers uh, because no one want, wanted to change the status quo. And there was uh, some concern that uh, uh, the kids wouldn't have enough time for their homeworks, uh, for their sports. But um, uh, those concerns have not been substantiated. And I think we definitely need more studies to document the benefits of late start time on uh, uh, children's mental health and the, and the physical health. There's, there's, there's also a reduction in motor vehicle crashes of mm -hmm. the teens driving to school because when they have to drive at those very early hours without enough sleep, they have an increased risk of motor vehicle crashes. Right. Please. I have another um, it's an anecdote, but there's a published data related mm -hmm. to a school system in the Cleveland, Ohio area we studied, and this was actually in a suburban area. And in that particular high school, 20% of the high school juniors and seniors were getting less than five hours a night of sleep. Do you remember what I said they need? They need about nine hours of sleep. But what was also interesting, just doing a brief survey, and actually a high school student did this as part of her senior project, she showed that those children that were getting five hours or less a night of sleep were more than twofold more likely to be overweight. So a glaring mm -hmm. example. And I also emphasize that this was in, in a suburban middle class neighborhood, because one thing we haven't yet mentioned too is that poor sleep, although it affects certain professions like physicians and, and, and um, you know, other groups, disproportionately <coughs> affects economically disadvantaged and minority groups. And I think that's something because, whether it's because of the shift workers, whether it's because of social environmental noise and pressure, and it's a real key need because these are also groups at risk for obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and um, children, you know, academic challenges. And we need to pay attention to the sleep of those segments of the population especially. So we've had a very attentive studio audience, and I'm sure everybody online is, is watching with the same amount of intrigue. And so we'd like to take some time for Q&A. Um, anybody have questions in the audience here, you know, please announce your name, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Yes, please.
Thank you. Stephanos Kales, I'm an associate professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and also uh, the director of occupational medicine training. So I want to thank uh, you and thank the entire panel for an excellent discussion. Uh, because of my background in occupational health, my particular interest is how the sleep deficit affects uh, employers and their employees. Professor Seisler, if you could uh, say you had one arrow to convince the employer uh, or the company <laughs> in terms of uh, promoting more sleep and better sleep for their employees. Would you focus on the risk of decreasing accidents or on the benefits of increasing health and productivity? Where would you, where would you aim that arrow? Thank you. I would really aim that arrow, I, I think, at increasing health and productivity. We this is actually the 30th anniversary of uh, a study that we did uh, where in, in a uh, factory in Utah, uh, we published this study showing they were, they were harvesting potash from evaporation ponds. And we showed that if we improved the design of the work schedule, they had a, they had a schedule where they were working seven consecutive uh, days, and then they would switch from day shift to night shift after one or two days off, and then from night shift to evening shift after another couple of days off, each sequence being seven consecutive days long in a counterclockwise direction of shift rotation with a weekly change of schedules wreaking havoc on the body's circadian timing, the, the internal clock that governs our ability to sleep. And when we applied some simple circadian principles to the schedule so that it rotated in a clockwise direction and they spent several weeks at a time on a steady shift before moving to the next shift. And we increased the frequency of days off so they didn't work seven consecutive days off, days on building up a sleep deficit. With those simple changes, they worked the same number of hours per week. Uh, the productivity and health indices that we measured went up dramatically. There was a 20% increase in the rate at which they harvested potash from the evaporation ponds with these huge front end loaders and whatnot. And when we published that article, in, in the month afterward, we had, we had uh, inquiries from a thousand factories from around the nation. Um, and essentially that old schedule was largely abandoned, that, that counterclockwise uh, rotating shift schedule. Unfortunately, a lot of them went ultimately to 12-hour shifts so they could get two, two extra days off per week because when the change started happening, people thought about what kind of different, if, if, if it's open to be changed, and many of them gravitated toward that system, which we know increases the risk of uh, accidents and injuries by uh, nearly 40% and uh, when they work 12-hour uh, shifts. So uh, that wasn't necessarily the desired outcome, but we know that there are ways of improving performance and productivity. And the reason I chose that one is because the health improved simultaneously. But the factories are motivated because of the desire for an increase in productivity. And if we're, if we're trying to induce change, I think that that's one of the most, uh, that's, that's one of the easiest way to get, we didn't have to go out and, and try to drag them in. They were, they were calling us and the phone was ringing off the hook. Let's take a question from um, one of our internet friends. Hello, um, I'm Robin Herman and I'm director of the forum and we have as a feature of the forum that we get questions from our online audience. And we have a question here from Paul Cotter in New Zealand. 
And he asks, um, could it be true that excessive demands placed on workers during the Industrial Revolution forced humans into the eight-hour sleep pattern, which today we accept as normal, and maybe we would benefit more if we enjoyed two sleeps? He's advocating, <laughs> you know, sleeping at night and then maybe having a, a little nap. Um, what do we have to say about uh, sleeping twice a day? Is that natural and better? Well, it turns out that a couple of hundred years ago, uh, we did have both split nocturnal sleep, uh, where we, we where people tended to go to bed. And there's a beautiful book that uh, that was written by a Virginia Tech professor about this, in which he went back and looked over historical records from hundreds of years ago, uh, court cases and other things. And people talked about the first dead sleep or the deep sleep at the beginning of the night. So they would get home, go to bed uh, near dusk. Uh, sleep in very deep sleep for three, four hours, wake up around midnight, uh, and then be out for actually a couple of hours. They would visit each other at times and whatnot. Uh, many children were uh, conceived during that interval. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody was too exhausted right away when they got home from working in the fields. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, then there'd be the second sweet sleep, the light sleep that we're, we're probably very enriched in rapid eye movement or the sleep stage associated with dreaming. Uh, in the in, in for the second sleep, and then of course there was the siesta during the daytime. So um, so the sleep was was more divided than it is today. Uh, so the notion that we have to pack our sleep and then if we wake up during the night that that's abnormal it probably isn't abnormal. It probably is how we evolved. Uh, so the the current uh, you know. Uh, concern that you have to go to the doctor and get a pill if you wake up during the night is, is probably misguided. I have a question over here. Hi, um, my name is Harsha Prabala. Can you please take this? Wait for the microphone. Hi, um, my name is Harsha Prabala. I'm from the Department of Neurosurgery at MGH. Um, I want to continue the theme of the first question, which um, a sentiment I work in Daniel Haber's lab, also working on brain cancer. and a piece of wisdom he told me is um, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. So <laughs> to focus on, everyone is aware of the problem, but to focus on the solution, I do want to give an extra piece of motivation to Dr. Leap. Um, in his maxims of revolution, as George Bernard Shaw said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. <laughs> and my question to you is, I see subdural hematomas all the time in the ER, OR, and there's no manual, there's no test book, textbook to treat all of them. My question to you is, what advice would you give to parents and individuals to solve slash combat this problem? Because clearly Congress, the ACGME institutions follow log logistics first and health and matters of science second. Well, I think, I think you bring up the important point, and that is that <coughs> the leadership for it has to come from the, ground root, from the ground up. And so that's why I say I think patient advocacy groups are our hope for changing things healthcare. I think the same thing applies in education. If we got parent groups that really focused on this and put the pressure on them, the school committees would change. Um, the trouble with that is scaling it up. Uh, I mean, you can do it in individual uh, enterprises, but it's very difficult to get that onto a national scale. 
the one thing I think we might see some help for in, in healthcare is OSHA. Uh, although OSHA and, and the government regulate strictly hours for air, 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 uh, airplane pilots and truck drivers and others, um, they don't do it in healthcare. Um, but they can cite healthcare organizations if there's evidence that patients are being hurt. And if there were some high visibility citations and hospitals um, were put on the front page of the paper for that, I think it would have an effect. I, th I think we're more likely to see it that way than we are to see any regulations come up. Hi, my name is Eva Schoenhammer. I am in the Department of Epidemiology and do some research on circadian disruption and shift work and how that affects chronic disease risk. My question today, though, is to about sleep. Um, and uh, I'd assume Dr. Redline or Seisler can address this. In following on the previous question, I almost thought you were going to address it that way. But um, when I remember back as a child, my parents would tell me to go to bed at 7, 10 o'clock. And there was no negotiation about that, even though I am definitely an evening person and would have stayed up much later. So I was never sleep deprived. And so the parenting, ad parenting advice, would that not perhaps also, how important would you think is it to give kids perhaps more lead in terms of how much sleep they should get? Well, that's a tough one when you ask about parenting advice, <laughs> being a parent myself. But I think you recognize that there are two things that you've observed. One is that across the population, there are owls and larks. And it probably, to some extent, relates to genes that we inherit. Often, larks have parents who are larks. That is, they like to get up in the, they, they do their best in the morning, and owls do their best in the evening. But on top of that, across um, childhood development, as I alluded to before, as children go through puberty, they really become owls, as at least as hormones are changing, and um, and then you'll recognize that they will have uh, um, problems really getting to sleep at an early time, and, and, and in some children it's especially difficult. And I think those are the children, to some extent, you need to allow to go to, to, to some extent, to go to bed a little later and give them the opportunity to sleep later in the morning. I mean, there, there are limits, and there are things that we could do to try to get them to sleep, you know, uh, you know avoiding caffeine in the evening and, and light and some melatonin. But there are some children, especially during puberty, are going to have a real trouble getting to sleep at 7 p.m. or 8 mm -hmm. p.m. And the key is to make sure that you could try to get a nine-hour sort of span of sleep in, and that's where the, the, the brush against the school starts time really comes in. Yes, I, I fully agree with that. And, and, uh, but, but there are some studies that have shown, uh, uh, in particular a study of, of whether uh, parents set a strict bedtime. Now, of course, the parents can set a bedtime and whether or not the children follow it. Is, mm -hmm. There are always exceptions, waivers for the particular night because of homework or whatever. But uh, children whose parents did not set a 10 p.m. absolute latest bedtime were at higher risk for depression and even suicidal ideation than children who, whose, whose uh, parents set a, a quote-unquote strict bedtime of 10 p.m. So I think that is important, and also removing televisions uh, from the bedrooms. Seventy percent of American children have TVs in their bedrooms, and those who do spend three hours more per day, per day, on recreational media than those who do not, and most of that is at the expense of sleep. Um, and I know that you and I have spoken, too, about 
in, in addition, the texting and the gaming mm -hmm. and the videos and the computers. So there are many things that we could do to fight this pubertal delayed sleep onset. And, and I fully agree with Dr. Seisel that actually structured family life is probably one of the best clues to really trying to enforce not only good sleep, but good mm -hmm. diet and exercise and keeping regular rhythms and um, you know, that, that sense of responsibility the whole family takes for routines. Yeah, I, I guess my advice is to, is to get uh, out of the uh, get the technology out of the bedroom, mm -hmm. uh, the TV, the iPad, iPhone. Uh, it's not very good idea for your teenagers to uh, sleep with the iPad or iPhone. Um, it's extremely disruptive. Yeah, mm -hmm. we we've mm -hmm. actually covered that on Huffington Post quite a bit, mm -hmm. and um, it, it it's it's so true. One after the next, you know. Mm -hmm piece of information that comes out <laughs> saying to take anything with data out of your bedroom so that you're not tempted. Right. Yeah. A, a study from Europe came out in, um, I think, young um, adolescents showing that a vast number of texts were between like 1 and 4 a.m. And not surprisingly, that the time of the, and the density of those texts mm -hmm. correlated with poor academic performance. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Do we have another one from our online audience? Uh, yes, we do. We've got quite a few. But um, this is a, an interesting one from someone in Honduras, um, Leonardo Micellis. international. Yeah, we, sleep we is a problem questions all over. from all over. I, there's one from Greece and uh, quite a few from the U.S. Um, <laughs> he is um, uh, asking, he says, here in Honduras, we're facing a lot of variables in regard to the amount of hours of sleep that are necessary to be productive. Uh, violence, delinquency, robbery lack of a good infrastructure in transportation, unemployment, and the like. Mothers and fathers can barely earn enough just to eat. They are required to work for 10 or 12 hours daily. What can we expect from this type of society, which he puts in quotes? And I think this addresses the question uh, someone brought up of disparities, that it is really um, people who are in uh, uh, stressful environments and uh, have uh, uh, lower incomes who are suffering um, these uh, these situations. Can you talk to, to this issue? That's undoubtedly one of the major contributing factors to why, as you pointed out, uh, Susan, that, uh, that people from disadvantaged backgrounds and, uh, and uh, lower socioeconomic groups, uh, that's one of the major contributors to whether they uh, can sleep well. And, and in fact, uh, many years ago, it was shown that that uh, some children who were suffering from what is called psychosocial dwarfism, where they're in a, s a very disrupted social environment and they're not actually growing, uh, that when they're taken out of that environment and put into a more protected environment where they can sleep, uh, that they are able to uh, continue to grow. And growth hormone is one of the hormones that is released during deep, slow-wave sleep. So if you're in an environment that is uh, so filled with anxiety and danger and disruption that you can't sleep well, that may I even interfere with your growth. Yeah, I just want to add that here we're talking about uh, sleep deprivation, obesity, diabetes, and those so-called uh, Western diseases. But now there is increasing evidence that sleep deprivation also contributes to infectious diseases, which are very common in developing countries. Uh, there is a recent study, uh, actually from the Nurses' Health Study, showing that uh, people who are sleep deprived are more likely to uh, develop pneumonia. Uh, and as Susan mentioned earlier, uh, sleep is very important for our immune function, for host defense, 
And so it's possible that those who are sleep deprived, they have weakened immune system, a weakened host uh, defense, and uh, they are, uh, that's the reason they are more susceptible to infections. So I think sleep is not only important for chronic diseases, but also for infectious diseases. And I just, I did want to add, I mean, uh, my heart goes out to people living in these situations, and there's obviously no easy fix. But there are people I, I know in this country and globally very committed to trying to work at proving the sleeping conditions of some of the most disadvantaged populations. There is an organization um, that's a nonprofit that works at trying to find bedding and um, mosquito nets and um, work with families to try to at least find safe places for children and their families to sleep in at night. There's a group Sleep Dreams in Detroit that does that and then there's this global group. So there's some Sometimes there are things that you could do on a local level to at least make the family and the child feel more secure and sleeping, although not obviously eliminate everything. Doug Dockery, I'm professor of environmental health here at the school. Um, so another environmental issue is noise at night, and there's lots of evidence that uh, the amount of noise in the cities especially has been going up uh, over the past many, many decades. There's also evidence that people who live in environments close to major roadways, close to railroads, for example, have higher rates of cardiovascular disease. Is this a opportunity for a public health intervention to try and reduce nighttime noise exposures? That's a great question. There are a couple of people in the audience that I know, Dr. Seward, Dr. Buxton, who are actually working locally here, even on air traffic patterns and other local regulations to actually try to make neighborhoods more conducive um, to sleeping at night without many of the intrusive noises. So I think that those are, those are really good points. And I'm very proud to be part of the community here that is trying to make the greater Boston area a um, less noisy place. <laughs> so we have time for one to two more questions, depending on how long the answers are. Um, should we, let's, let's do one more maybe from the audience and then finish up. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Gail Henson. I'm from the Foundation for Healthy Kentucky, which brokers health care issues for obesity, uh, diabetes, and cardiovascular in a very fat state. But I've also been on the State Board of Education. So to take your message um, for getting more sleep for children with public policy, I, I, I would ask how can we get your message across to policymakers and teacher unions who set the schedules, range for the buses, and pay for all the education. How do we get your message to public policymakers like myself? <laughs> well, I think this kind of forum is <laughs> going to be very, very useful, very informative. And I, I think if you ask people on the street, most people wouldn't think sleep uh, is an important factor in obesity, diabetes, and the chronic diseases. So increasing awareness about uh, the importance of sleep, I, I think that's the uh, very important first step. But information in itself is not going to be sufficient to motivate people to change their behaviors. I think we need um, uh, changes in the organizational levels at the individual levels uh, in terms of uh, uh, sleep patterns, changing our physical environment, changing our food environment. Uh, sleep, I think, should be incorporated into overall uh, healthy diet and lifestyle. 
Um, and uh, in the past, we usually consider sleep as a kind of a lower priority. Um, but now I think uh, there is uh, uh, enough evidence to indicate that uh, sleep is as important as diet and uh, exercise, and we should have an integrated approach uh, for improving uh, all the three areas for the prevention of obesity and, and diabetes. I mean, it's, I mean it's very funny, even my, the editors who work with me on healthy living, we call them accidental doctors. Um, and whenever, because they're reading this stuff all the time and they haven't gone to school, <laughs> um, but um, whenever anyone is not feeling well, the first thing that is said is, go get some sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny that that's just the, it's so common knowledge, it's so simple. But somehow policymakers uh, may forget this aspect and not, and not think about it. And, and one of the things that I would say in response is we may have to tag along with other movements. So there is right now a big concern, especially in major cities, about crime in the interval between the time kids get home and the time their parents get home from work. And so a lot of, uh, for example, uh, Governor Deval Patrick here in Massachusetts is, has an initiative to extend school hours, as does uh, 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 Mayor Rahm Emanuel in the city of Chicago, uh, to extend school hours to later in, in the day. And, uh, but when I spoke with both of them about potentially starting school later as they are extending the school hours, they hadn't heard of this air, th they hadn't heard of the notion that that starting later would have any improvements associated with it, and said, you know, send me some information and we'll consider it. But it was remarkable to me since this is this movement, uh, from our point of view, has been going on for 20 years, that the policymakers who are investigating the school schedules and actually proposing initiatives to change them, uh, that somehow one of the interns working on such a project or a provide staff have not even run across uh, the dozens and dozens of studies that have been done and interventions. So I think somehow we need to tag on to these other initiatives uh, and begin to get this message heard as part of these other changes. Great. So looks like we're close to out of time, but I want to thank our brilliant panelists for being here and sharing your wisdom with us and your research. And such a great in-studio audience and our online audience for all your questions. And please read the sleep page on the Huffington Post. That's all <laughs> I will say. And send us anything you think needs to be covered because we're, we're totally committed to providing an outlet for, uh, for this on, on media. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.